Hello, and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm your host, Inman Narwin, and this week we're going to be talking with GLIA, a rad organization that designs 3D-printed medical devices so, so that no matter where you are, you can access basic and quality medical devices. But first, this podcast is a proud member of the Channel Zero network of anarchist podcasts, and here's a jingle from another show on the network. Do 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 do. The border is not just a wall. It's not just a line on a map. It's a power structure, a system of control. The border does not divide one world from another. There is only one world, and the border is tearing it apart. The X Worker Podcast presents No Wall They Can Build. A Guide to Borders and Migration Across North America. A serialized audiobook in 11 chapters released every Wednesday. Tune in at crimethink.com slash podcast. And we're back. Um, thanks so much, y'all, for coming on the podcast today. Would y'all like to introduce yourselves uh, with your name, pronouns, and uh, what you what what you're here to talk about, or what your role is in Glia? Okay, I'll go first. My name is Carrie Wakeham, and that's she/her. And um, my role at Glia is executive director. It sounds very flashy. It's not. We're all team players here at Glia. My name is Corin. My pronouns are she and they. I'm a volunteer with the GLIA project, particularly focused on the tourniquet, specifically with regards to manufacturing instructions and quality control documentation. Cool. And would y'all want to kind of introduce what GLIA is? Absolutely. So uh, GLIA is a medical device manufacturing company. We do lots of research and we build and research devices that are considered um, high quality, open source, and at cost. And that's sort of uh, the stuff that we do. How did GLIA come to get started? Also, does GLIA stand for anything? Is it an acronym or is it just a fun word? Everybody asks that question about the acronym and how we became GLIA or where the name came from. And really, there's no interesting story behind it. I think the original team on the GLIA project just basically said what should we call this? Somebody threw out the name Glia and then it stuck as far as I know, but that was before my time. I can absolutely speak to a bit of the history about Glia and how it came to be. So our founder, Tarek Lubani, is an emergency medicine physician in London, Ontario, Canada. And he works frequently in the Gaza Strip. And Quite a few years ago, he was there during the war and he was responding to um, a large amount of casualties and he was in a room with a whole bunch of patients that needed to be seen. And when he looked around, he saw that there was only two stethoscopes being used in that room and one of them was around his own neck and literally people had blood on their ears because they were putting their ear to the chest of patients to hear if there were heartbeats. And it occurred to him that some other places in the world don't have access to even the basic medical tools like stethoscopes. And then after that trip, he was home and he was playing with one of his nephews and he was uh, using the little toy plastic uh, stethoscope like Dr. Kit. I think Fisher Price used to make one when I was a kid. Anyway, that's who made one. I'm sure there's a lot of knockoffs now, but they had a little toy stethoscope um, and he put it to his ears and he was listening and he was like, this thing actually works. You can actually hear a heartbeat through this plastic toy. And he just had an interest in 3D printing at the time. And he thought to himself, I wonder if I could create a stethoscope using a 3D printer um, that would be more accessible, lower cost, and hopefully as high a quality as the Lippmann Cardiology 3, which is what our stethoscope now compares to. So Leah does have a 3D printed stethoscope today. It was our first product that was developed, and it's based off of that uh, experience of our founder. Cool. That is, that, or that, that, yeah, that's kind of, it, that makes sense how that would prompt an organization like Glia, um, but it is that's really grim that that is 
how these organizations start. Yeah, unfortunately, those are the stories that probably motivate people to do something about these scenarios, right? So you see a problem and, and you want to solve it. Is Glee, like, I guess, so from from there, this person started printing, th- like, 3D printing stethoscopes. And then, like, how did the larger structure of Glia kind of start from there? Was it, like, people just being like, oh, that's really cool. Could we also make this other thing? Or um, Yeah, so a lot of what we've done there's parts of it that have been strategic and parts of them, parts of our projects that have been organic. The first stethoscope, I believe, was developed in 2014. I didn't come into the project full time myself until 2017. So this is a little bit before my time. Uh, stethoscopes were the thing that we were sort of working on at the moment that I joined Glia myself. And we started with the stethoscope specifically because it's an iconic device, right? Like everybody recognizes it. So there was some strategy into picking a device to get started on the topic of how can an open source stethoscope really change the world? How can that provide better access to quality healthcare? It's a talking point and it still is to this day. From there, though, it was the experiences of the people that were working or um, associated with the project, collaborators. We've had a lot of collaborators, a lot of volunteers over the years that sort of drove um, the direction of some of these projects. And the one that Corin mentioned at the beginning of and when she introduced herself uh, was the Turnkey Project. And that was actually originally developed by the engineers that were working for Glia at in 2017, a group there, um, and they saw a need for tourniquets in the Gaza Strip. Uh, they just couldn't access this type of device, and as we know in Gaza, there's constantly the threat of war, so they needed to be able to come up with something that they could get access to. And so they designed this tourniquet, and we can probably get into that a little bit later. But that was something that organically happened from our remote office. Um, Other projects like our otoscope, we have a 3D printed otoscope. This project was literally designed by a guy that was attending audiology school. So uh, a gentleman that was in his early 20s, had a fondness again for 3D printing, and he was sitting in class going, why does an otoscope cost $400? I'm a student. I'm on a student budget. I can't access this general piece of equipment. And and we're not talking about the Welch Allen otoscopes that are attached in your doctor's office. We're talking about just, you know, a plain handhold um, regular tool to look into somebody's ear. And so this guy, his name's Frankie Tellerico, he actually sought us out and he was like, I want to make this otoscope and I want to just design it quickly on some software and I want to make it open source so that anyone else can access that source code and, and copy it from anywhere else in the world. And he looked out to see who else was doing things like him. And it just so happened we were in the same exact city, literally like, a 10 minute drive from each other. And um, he reached out and he said, I have this device that I've been working on. Um, I want it perfected. You guys seem to be a little bit more ahead of, of the game of terms of open source medical devices. How can we help each other? And so he brought this idea, this concept, this design. We had it, you know, sort of uh, perfected in a couple of different versions. Um, and now what you see on our website is a working portable otoscope for it's $100 Canadian for that device. And we're hoping to improve our manufacturing process in the next year when we have people like Corn involved to help those processes get a little bit more efficient. We can lower the price even further. So um, it's cost right now one-fourth of what it does for the comparable um, gold standard model on the market. Wow. Yeah, that is, I mean, that's a significant difference. Um if someone like if someone downloaded it and printed it themselves, would it be cheaper for them to print it themselves than? Yeah. Or? So yeah, in in a sense, it would be. So there's um, so what Glia does is we take our um designs that we make. All of our medical devices are located in our public repository on GitHub, and people can access those files and make them themselves. So there's no 
you know, limit to what people can do with these things. They can redevelop them and make them better. That's what we really love is when people uh, come into our feedback cycles and we see improvements for our devices. That's one benefit of having it open source. But people certainly can take the device and make it. And in fact, if somebody copies what we're doing, that is a success to us. That's what we want to happen here, which is probably much different from many of the other medical device companies you think you might know. We measure our success based on how much it's replicated. And so somebody can take that device, they can make it on their printer. It, it really does cost cents to print with the plastic that we're using. There's a few electronic components and batteries. There's a lens that you need to source. So that might be, you know, you could, you can get that somewhere between five and $20 US to get a lens that goes into this, not very expensive pieces. And then it's your time of putting it together. But I must say the one caveat in all of this being is that if you are building and replicating medical devices and using them on patients, you have to have proper compliance in your area. So GLIA holds a medical device establishment license, which is um, a Health Canada uh, license that um, we have to make sure that all of our devices that are going out are safe to use on patients. And we would encourage anyone else to do the same thing if they were really making these things to use on patients, to sell to others, to use on patients, et cetera. Yeah, I was going to ask, not in like a skeptical way or anything, but like in a, yeah, how does how does the devices that y'all make compare to like professional medical devices that are produced in factories, which I mean, this is just, yeah, Ooh, it, so... it do doesn't seem all that different because it, it's oh, different it... means of manufacturing, but. Great question. I love this question. So Great. what Glia is trying to do is to make our devices as close in functionality to the gold standard devices that you would see. So we don't compare ourselves to cheap plastic shit that's like built elsewhere um, or knockoffs or crap that you can find all over Amazon. You know, we mm -hmm. want to make sure that we are building high quality devices. So we do real research backed by real institutions. Mm -hmm on that and then we publish real papers and reputable journals about the research that we do so it, the idea here is to make something in a different way that lowers the cost increases the access but does not touch the standard of quality so quality is number one for us and then alongside quality safety so that's where the question of compliance sort of comes in we encourage anyone that's producing medical devices to make sure they understand proper compliance in their area and really in the world right now there are four main places to get compliance one is health canada which is where we our home offices is in canada there's also the FDA. Um, there is one, and I'm not sure of the exact name, but there's one for the European Union that qualifies. And then I believe there's one in Australia as well. So for the countries that don't have these types of governing bodies where often these devices are needed most, they would follow compliance from one of those other countries um, that provide that service. And if they are, then that you could trust that you're being safe with what you're doing. Cool. Cool. Yeah. So in contrast, y'all are, y'all are producing these medical devices for very little money, but it is without the sacrifice of quality. And so it's, it's, it's like, is that kind does that offer like a, like a good alternative to, like people are like, oh, I need cheap medical supplies. I will go buy them on Amazon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I wouldn't recommend doing that specifically, but um, it doesn't it doesn't mean there aren't good quality medical devices on Amazon. Okay, so mm -hmm. I can I can just say that for sure. Um, the difference. So the point of this all is to make a sustainable business model where people get paid fair wages to build high quality devices. And the point here is not to gouge people 
that need these devices to improve their health. Mm-hmm. What Glia is trying to do and say and change in the culture of the way our health system operates today is that nobody should be making money on the backs of people's health care. And yeah. so we should charge what it costs to produce these devices. That's what the customer should pay at the end, not that price plus investments, like paying off investors, paying off people so that they can have their Lamborghinis and their yachts and go out and do all these things, right? Like this is not the place for that. If you want to make a designer t-shirt and sell that to someone and they want to pay, you know, $500 for a t-shirt, that's up to them. That's not something they need, but people need access to healthcare. And there's, there's a lot of inequity in our world today with, with accessing even these simple devices, as I said, in my very first example Um, of how the company came to be. Like, why is it in 20, I believe that happened in 2012. Why was it in 2012 that stethoscopes weren't available in a place in this world, like quality stethoscopes? And um, that just doesn't make any sense. And the three of us, we may have had enough privilege to be able to understand what stethoscope was from the minute we could walk or talk, thanks to Fisher Price too. Um, but also, you know, like it, what, it's not an issue for us to really get some simple tools, but that's not everywhere in the world. How then do devices make it from y'all to places like Gaza? Mm-hmm. or anywhere where people anywhere where people who need to be able to access them yeah how do, how does that that flow path work this can happen in a couple of different ways uh our preferred method is for people to adopt what we're doing and do it themselves mm-hmm. you know this is this i was talking a little bit about the measurement of success for glia and one of those things is getting people to replicate what we're doing and so if they decide um i need access to a particular device anywhere in the world it really for our devices right now the way they stand it's mostly about um having access to a quality desktop printer and Mm -hmm. Um, having the source code, having a little bit of expertise, proper compliance, and you've got the recipe to start building your own devices. So whether that be 100 devices or 100,000 devices, you can really do that um, based on this model. It is scalable. I mean, but it's not meant to be massively scalable, right? It's Mm -hmm. about, it's about keeping the decentralized manufacturing model alive and only filling the need in communities as they need things, um, not overproducing, you know, like we're, we don't want to throw a whole bunch of crap into the landfill. Like that's not, that's not one of our objectives. Our objectives is to fill the needs of the people who need what they need. Now, Glia, that doesn't mean that Glia doesn't ship things, you know, like we will, some people can't or don't have interest or don't want to, or it's not feasible. Um, An example of that is sending tourniquets over to Ukraine for some response there. (laughs) There are, we also had an initiative. um, We're working on it again this year, but a couple of years ago, we sent out 200 stethoscopes to uh, medical students graduating from their class. So fourth year medical students still did not have access in Kenya and Zambia to a simple stethoscope. So we worked with a group over there called Make-A-Medic, or in, sorry, they're in the UK. And um, we collaborated with them to send these stethoscopes over. They weren't necessarily interested in that moment in starting their own lab, getting proper compliance, you know, getting all those tools. But mm-hmm. getting that conversation started by sending over a couple of hundred units means that we can talk about those things in the future. Now we have these stethoscopes and now when something happens to one of these stethoscopes, how do we repair it, right? Yeah. And that's what's beautiful about the model if you actually do you know, invest in a $1,400 Canadian um, printer and teach somebody a little bit about what we're doing 
give them the access to be able to build it themselves. And then they can go ahead and make more repair what they have. You know, it, it just makes, it just makes sense. Yeah. Cool. And you mentioned a little bit about Gaza specifically. Um, those are produced in Gaza. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that was, was because there was a dire need for them and attempting to get um, medical supplies through that blockade uh, is very difficult without paying exorbitant fees. Um, mm-hmm. They would cost to get like a, a, a cat tourniquet here in the U.S. cost about thirty dollars. To get into Gaza would be about forty U.S. Um, even if you're for, buying in massive bulk quantities for a single so, tourniquet. Uh, yeah, oh, about yeah. forty dollars each. Oh yeah. my god, U.S. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. that's that's a lot of money in Gaza to pay for medical devices. And not only yeah. that, but there's another huge issue we can bring in if it's time to do that, which is talking a little bit about donation culture and mm-hmm. how a place like Gaza especially deals I mean I've learned a lot about this especially in the last year, but the health system in Gaza right now is reliant on donations so much so that it's hard for them to steer out of any other path and they can't even you know fathom the idea sometimes about being empowered to build their own stuff because they're Mm -hmm. so used to receiving um basically other people's secondhand items so but what this what this does is it creates this dumping culture where devices will get dumped into an area because another place doesn't need it so they'll say oh who wants this we don't want to throw it away so let's go put it somewhere where people can't have access so there's a whole bunch of problems with that system especially in gaza one of the things is, is they get a lot of stuff they don't need or don't want they can't store it they have inventory crisis constantly because of all of this dumping that happens of things they don't need or don't want and then they become reliant on something so for example one of the ideas that glia has down the pipeline is creating a dialysis machine and we don't really want to reinvent dialysis what we want to do is take an existing type of dialysis machine and build an adapter to fit on that existing machine that will speak to any one of the disposables that may be used um, for the purpose of dialysis. So right now, those things are manufactured in a way that if XYZ company makes it, you have to get XYZ disposables to be compatible with that machine in order to use it. So what's happening in Gaza is that there are there is literally a gymnasium full of dialysis machines that are unusable and another gymnasium full of disposables that are unusable because those two units are not compatible. So Glia's idea for a device, now this is going to be a $5 million project. And, you know, if any of your listeners have access to that type of cash, we would absolutely (laughs) love to begin this project. Um, But, you know, this is, we want to build an adapter that will speak to those two pieces so that people can actually use the stuff that is donated to them that is given to them because it and and you can imagine so now they have storage issues and they become reliant on these people that are feeding them the donations right so it's it's just there's so many problems with that now if you look at what Glia is trying to do, we have an office in Gaza. We have an office with several printers running. We build our own tourniquets locally there. So we build our own medical devices there. So they're already there, you know, and people can purchase or use what they need. They don't need to rely on somebody else's handouts to get them in there. And there's a lot more that we could do there as well, but it, it's difficult. It's difficult to even negotiate with those governing bodies that make those decisions in Gaza because they're so used to dealing with these uh, donations. And, and that's kind of the system they're relying on right now. Yeah. I cannot imagine being a medical practitioner in Gaza and like being like, well, we need dialysis machines and having an entire gymnasium full of dialysis machines that you can't use that wow i hope that y'all get to (laughs) to Mm -hmm. crack that one soon Mm -hmm. and it's and and like corn was saying it's extremely difficult to get things in i worked on a project in 20 
2016, I want to say. Yes, 2016, where I moved 10 dialysis machines from northern Ontario. So for your U.S. listeners, um, Ontario is in central Canada and northern Ontario is somewhat remote, okay? Um, This and this is going to fill all the stereotypes that people think of Canada right now, what I'm going to say. Um, where I moved these, uh, I work with a nephrologist and he wanted me to take, he, he did some work in Gaza and he saw that there were some machines that were at this Northern Ontario hospital that were compatible with some of the disposables that were already in Gaza and they weren't being used by us. So he said, let's pay to get these 10 machines that are basically obsolete for Canadians, okay? Let's move them to Gaza. This project took me nearly 12 months to get these in. They had to come from this hospital via Ice River onto a train, onto another train, onto a plane, and then perhaps a ship. I can't remember. It was a while ago. I don't know if we had it on a ship to get across, but then of course it had to wait that like to get this in through the blockade was terribly difficult, but we, we were able to get the ministry of health in Gaza on board and, and, you know, they let them in eventually. It also cost us $10,000 Canadian in shipping. So what, are we doing here, folks? This makes no sense. And all just because, oh, somebody donated some disposables and they don't talk to any of the machines we have here. So let's dig out these ones out of the basement of um, Northern Ontario and, and move those over. You know, it's just so frustrating because think about how far $10,000 would have gone in terms of buying any type of medical device <laughs> if they had the market to do so in Gaza. It would be it would be, uh, it's just, there's nothing that can, can really be said about that. It's. Yeah, it's, it's, that is maddening. I know that, I mean, not to relate things back to like, uh, things in the United States, but, um, I remember when, you know, early, early COVID times, there was like a serious lack of ventilators and, Mm -hmm. Um, the, like, like all the car companies were like going on strike to, uh, have the car, like car company factories make ventilators instead. And I don't really know where I'm going with this, but just maybe for people like in the United States to like, think about like a comparable, like, or semi-comparable like situation of like absurdity that like, we have all these means of production and um, but we're like using them to make cars or we're using them to make stuff that people don't need instead of like getting basic medical, having basic medical supplies be accessible to people who need basic medical supplies. I don't know. It just, it hurts my brain a lot. (laughs) Not, not to, again, not to like directly compare these two things because they are different, but uh, even here in the U S you know, glucometers, um, the things that you use to measure your blood sugar, the, uh, the strip and I think it's the Lancet and the unit itself same kind of razor and blades model where one does not work with every other type of glucometer. So it's, it's exactly like manufacturers just love to do the whole razor and blades thing with people's health because at the end of the day, if it makes them money, they'll, they'll they'll do it. Yeah. Yeah. And that, (laughs) that is the wild thing to, when I think about it is that like all these medical industries, they exist to make people money, not mm-hmm. to necessarily get people medical supplies. Yeah, yeah, it's it's sadly true. And so, so I guess the question is then then what can you do about that to change that culture, and to yeah. start thinking about this in a way that's um, more about sharing what you know versus holding it tight to your vest to serve yourself? How do you really serve other people um, Mm -hmm. with the information that you have? And so that's what Glia is really trying to do is just to show that 
there are there's a different business model for those folks. And it doesn't mean that people need to be making no money or that it needs to be charitable. There's a system that could be in place where people just get paid to build stuff fairly, maybe even just add a little bit to that. So it's a nice cushy job, you know, like give them, give them extra vacation time or give them just a couple of extra bonuses per year for just being great people. And you can do all of that and not gouge people at the end for that, for all that upfront R and D that's done at the beginning, because that's kind of, you know, fluffy in and of itself, all of the R and D, we really don't need to redo R and D every time we do it. If we just share the information we learned the last time we did it. Right. So why are we reinventing the wheel? Like really, why did Glia have to come in and take a device like the stethoscope who that has seen no improvement since the 1970s in terms of its functionality or design or anything and say, we have to start from scratch and build this because, you know, like we, we took something that was off patent and looked at that design and replicated it. But why are we hiding behind patents here? You know, like it, it doesn't it doesn't really make much sense when people need health care. Um, OK, I have an example. I will share a personal example. Uh, I, ta- I talk about this sometimes um, when I give presentations. Um, so my personal experience isn't actually about medical devices. It's about um pharmaceuticals. And I think the thing is, is that people in the US and Canada, there's a difference between the relation for a layperson in the US and like in North America, especially probably other places in the world too. But I know here, I know our neighbors here. And everybody in North America has a relationship with pharmaceuticals, whereas not everybody in North America has a direct relationship with medical devices. Medical practitioners do medical um, administrators do or people that are making decisions on purchases or people that are building these things, but not necessarily. Like my mother doesn't have any personal connection to a stethoscope, even though I'm sure her physician uses it on her every time she goes and sees uh, her. But I think the thing about pharmaceuticals is that everybody's accessing this. So we all know about how much of an upcharge there is on certain medicines. And so, for example, I have a sister who has a very serious heart condition, and she needs to take medicine in Canada that it costs uh, $40,000 a year for her lung health. And without that, she wouldn't be here. So because of where we live in the world, she's able to access that through a community, like through the Trillium program that's in Canada that supports people who who can't afford it. And she can't, you know, she's on disability here in Canada because she can't work because of her condition. It's quite Mm -hmm. severe. And without this life-saving medication, but $40,000 a year, how on earth with anyone without a healthcare system like we have in Canada, be able to live, you would die, you would die. Right. So what are we doing when we don't have working dialysis machines you know, that are not talking to each other. Like people need dialysis or they die. A lot of people yeah. need dialysis. And so, and this, and the thing is, is that the technology exists. The manufacturing of these things can exist. This is not like brand new science. This is stuff that people can do now. We're not talking about building a dialysis machine on Mars. We're talking about just building it here on Earth. And then the problem here is that, you know, but this one has to be compatible with that one. Anyway, it's it's just a mess. I know that a big project that y'all have currently is tourniquets. Um, and Corin, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that project. Yeah, the Glia tourniquet, I believe, uh, started in Gaza as, as well. And that uh, was due to necessity. This happens very frequently while, where Israel will... Uh, start you know waging war on on the Gaza Strip, uh, and that causes a lot of casualties. And due to the blockade, it's very difficult to get like commercially manufactured tourniquets in. And so the solution that 
uh, came up, and this was be- before I joined the project, but the solution that, was, that happened there was to make this tourniquet that could be 3D printed and sewn together with locally available materials. And that's, it, 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 it works. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like I, cool. <laughs> I, yeah. That's awesome. And I know you're saying kind of like the price comparison of like, if like a, like a tourniquet, if you wanted to buy one, it's like what, like 30, 40 bucks. And then like to get it into Gaza, it would be a lot more. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, getting it in there from what I've heard uh, from Tarek, it, it's about $40 US if you have a bulk order to get it into Gaza. And the time that that would take is variable, depends on a number of factors. Uh, here in the United States, you can get them for about $30, give or take. Um, some models are more expensive, but that's about what you're looking for. The Glia tourniquet, I think we've run the numbers a little bit, depending on where you source your materials, how you do it. In theory, you could manufacture it for about $7.50, but that is before any compliance or overhead. That's just materials and assuming you have the equipment ready to make it. Yeah, cool. I guess beyond the obvious of like putting the means into people's hands to to produce their own medical supplies, like like why is tourniquets like a big deal? So just in general, uh, they what they're used for, I guess, for folks who don't know, um, it's basically a big strap that gets uh, tightened around a limb and it occludes all blood flow to that limb. So in the event of like a massive hemorrhage, massive amount of bleeding, these can save lives. These have been gaining popularity over the last, I want to say about 20 years. And I think that's largely due to the forever wars, unfortunately. That's where a lot of trauma medicine winds up coming out of. And so there's been a huge resurgence of interest in them. And at this point, they are now very popular and and they're very much used to stop uh, massive hemorrhage. For non-military applications, there's there's any number of them. Uh, Here in the U.S., we have to contend with a large number of mass shootings. So aside from mass shootings, there's a number of other uh, situations where you might need a tourniquet. You can have accidents with you know, cooking accidents with knives or uh, power tools, lawnmowers, chainsaws, things of that nature, natural disasters, which are unfortunately becoming more common. Those are all, all situations where folks might need tourniquets. I would also add to that industrial accidents and a lot of backcountry activities. So things like up in your friends in the north doing a lot of snowmobiling, those types of people, a lot of uh, those types of sports have been reaching out to us with interest in the tourniquet as well. So it's it's becoming an item that really should be an every first aid kit. And one of Glia's goals in the next, let's say, year to two years is to start diving in a little bit more into the U.S. market with these items um, and making sure they're in every public space. So, for example, every school needs one of these tourniquets in the U.S., every mall. But even in Canada, where we don't have as many mass shootings, these things are useful for all those other reasons. If you work in a facility, lots of people still work on lines. You know, machines are doing stuff for us, but there's a lot of people doing factory work. Tourniquets need to exist there. Yeah, yeah. I remember this seeing this kind of shift as you know in 2020 when there were a lot of there was a lot of gun violence happening at like large protests and stuff and just like seeing people like like everyone had tourniquets like strapped to their belts and stuff and but I also remember talking to people who were like oh like I'm maybe not gonna go to the thing because like I don't have a tourniquet and like I spending that much money on a tourniquet right now sounds overwhelming. <laughs> and interesting. That's so interesting. Yeah. So it's becoming way more commonplace, I think, with tourniquets. And it's becoming something that your regular EMS isn't just carrying. Because the other big issue with tourniquets and why the hill is so steep for glia is not just all of the r&d and the manufacturing and the governing body approval which i think we might get into a bit but you know all the certifications and things that you might need for these types of devices or what you would assume you may need aside from all of those tricky things the steepest hill for us is that 
lay people don't know how to apply tourniquets properly. So unless you're a trained person in the use of tourniquets, then it's hard to just put a tourniquet in a public space and know how to use it. So part mm-hmm. of Glia's endeavor is never just to make a device and be like, oh, we made our device. That's it. Here you go. No, no, no. We have to do the full package. So likely, you know, we might um, seek out uh, educational companies that are interested in open source as well and provide educational material to people so that you can become fluent in using a device like this. Cool. Um, Corin, I know we were talking a little off air about this, but um, you mentioned that uh, like kind of, I guess maybe the right word is compliance for mm-hmm. civilian grade tourniquets, like is like, doesn't really exist or, or something. Doesn't um, exist. There, there is no standard for a tourniquet. So the way I actually got into the project was, um, Tarek Labani did an interview on it could happen here where he talked about 3d printed tourniquets. And I said, well, oh, that's very interesting. And so I go, went and looked through the GitHub and looked through all the resources and, couldn't find like what standard does this meet how is this being tested mm-hmm. and after some further back and forth and discussion it turns out there isn't a standard for tourniquets that it does not exist um astm which is a standards making body is i think working on one but it's not released yet mm-hmm. and it's, it's extremely new if you know if that ever does come out there literally just is no standard that you can say, well, I've done this. And so therefore it's a good tourniquet. Yeah. And, and the way you kind of um, determine whether or not your tourniquet works is I think largely by comparison. I mean, there is some testing that's done, but it's by comparison to like what's being used currently. And does it work as well as that? Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. Yeah. I was just going to add to that too, that, Again, like Glia doesn't just stop at like, oh, let's take a medical device and reproduce it or build it again. We have to do we have to go to all the lengths to make sure that this thing can get out there and people can use it safely. So one of the things we needed to do was to partner with somebody that was willing to design a tester for the type of tourniquets that we were making. And that's been a massive project. And actually, it was designed by the Free Appropriate Sustainable Technology Research Group at Western University. And they just published the tester that they developed to test not only the glia tourniquet, but any tourniquet that works in the way that the glia tourniquet works. So now we can start developing some sort of standard because when you make a device like this and then you realize that the only thing that really gave it any clout was some panel that decided that these particular tourniquets were the one we were going to use. And then because of mass production built a reputation, even though, you know, the cat tourniquet actually in the field is only something like 55% effective when it's applied, you know, and it's the most well-known gold standard tourniquet out there today on the market that people trust the most, but you know, half the time you're going to put that on, it's going to fail. So you, Glia dives into like, why does it fail? What is the test being done on that? Is it actually the education of the user? Does the user know how to apply the tourniquet? You know, we don't, we don't just stop at, oh, here's the device now for the market. You can buy it, do what you will with it. You know, like all those other checkboxes are, are applicable. Yeah. Yeah. Is like, I guess, cause it, is the the cat seven is that the tourniquet that like the military uses or do they use yeah so I, I think this is maybe a good time to explain what kotsi is if that oh yeah yeah that, totally. okay so there is this panel called kotsi that's c-o-t-c-c-c committee on tactical combat casualty care um it's a military panel and i'm, I'm actually gonna quote from their website it says the committee on tactical combat casualty care is the pre-hospital arm of the Joint Trauma System for the Department of Defense. So what it is, is it's about 40-something folks who are um, various types of medical professionals. There's some doctors, surgeons, nurses, combat medics, special operations medics, things like that. And these folks, at some point, uh, some years ago, I don't have the exact article here in front of me, they evaluated some number of tourniquets and they said, okay, 
here's based on what we've been using in combat and based on our examination of them we recommend the following tourniquets and and they had the combat application tourniquet generations six and seven by north american rescue that's the cat by nar there was also the soft t wide by TACMED solutions and there was a third one that's a pneumatic tourniquet we don't need to talk about and so for the longest time there were just those two tourniquets were the only ones that this this panel said you should buy now that makes plenty of sense they're a military panel they are interested in serving the military they're interested in military procurement systems so they want to go to a company who can produce an enormous quantity of them and certify that they are good and will work and supply them in bulk that's what they're interested in they are not so much interested in civilian applications they that's not their concern because they're you know they are they serve the department of defense right so that's their concern that's why they had only those really those three tourniquets because that's all they needed now more recently they released another journal article in which they which and when i say more recently i mean it's still several years ago at this point where they expanded that list of recommended tourniquets substantially um, but they don't evaluate every single tourniquet on the market a lot of their recommendations are based on combat experience so if if the tourniquet hasn't seen combat they're not necessarily going to recommend it and there's you know other things like that at the end of the day they are still a military panel interested in making decisions for and about the military yeah yeah so glia is kind of offering like a much better alternative for like civilian use like tourniquets than currently exists yeah and and that's actually one of the design criteria in the glia tourniquet was that it works um better on children they're uh, from the experience of folks uh, medical professionals in gaza they found that the cat tourniquet didn't necessarily work as well on uh, people who had very small limbs so young children in general one of the design criteria that then came out of that was that it works better on children and so some of the design decisions on the glia tourniquet particularly the separation of the back plate and the clip uh, came as a result of wanting to make the tourniquet work better for children this is can i ask you all like a kind of i guess like maybe 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 a little bit funny like kind of like theoretical question of course cool <laughs> or just some things that are going through my head when I think about like Glia's project and open source pharmaceuticals or open source medical equipment in general is that is if we like if we start seeing more parts of society kind of like collapse or break down or like infrastructure break down more is this kind of like open source like medical equipment a something that is going to be useful for people like in like i don't know in 10 years god i hope it's more than 10 years when like uh the north american governments collapse and we're in some kind of hellish civil war and people are like oh medical like the military has stuff and that's it <laughs> yeah i mean i think the nice thing about the model that glia is developing is that it's it's really adoptable, adaptable by any, like many different types of scenarios. So yeah. it's as relevant for what you're just said and what you're just talking about now, as it is for some refined medical school somewhere in the world where they just want to do some good and they want to lower costs and they want to build their own medical devices and send them out to all their students for the incoming class that year. You know, we can set a lab up here in London, Ontario at our medical school that exists here and have those students build their own medical devices and have proper, as long as they have proper compliance, I'm not gonna stop saying that, um, as long as they have proper compliance then they can build their own devices. And the thing that's beneficial about that is that then you get up and coming medical practitioners thinking about their medical devices in a different way than they currently do today. They can make, they can see that they can customize, make modifications, be innovative, have a say. 
so they do not get into vendor lock-in uh, with any of the products that they purchase. So I think that's one applicable scenario. And then you can go to some war-torn country, some place that's desolate, and all they need is solar energy, which, by the way, our Gaza office completely powers all of their printers with solar energy. And you can use a solar power energy in the middle of the desert. And if you just are able to like tent in that unit and get proper humidity under control, then you can start building your own medical devices wherever you need them. And I mean, we're talking about stethoscopes, tourniquets, otoscopes. Glia also has a pulse oximeter coming down the road. We have a portable electrocardiogram that's coming out um, very soon. It's um, just entering clinical trials this summer. So there's lots of different types of devices that could be in these scenarios that you may need, like in something that's somewhat remote. And so it doesn't matter how remote the community or how vast and vibrant the community is, these devices can be used anywhere and they can and it and the process is applicable in all of the communities like really we should be making all our devices like this everywhere like why are we transporting shit halfway across the world anymore it makes no yeah. sense it makes no sense no no it, it truly doesn't <laughs> you asked in the context of societal collapse and there's a lot of areas even today where we can see that for example the wildfire smoke that's blanketing uh, areas of Canada and, and even in the U.S. And I know that Margaret Kiljoy, along with Robert Evans over at It Could Happen Here, talked a bit about this and building Corsi Rosenthal boxes, uh, which are basically air filters made out of box fans and, and furnace filters. And so those boxes are a very good example of devices, medical. we can call them medical supplies, that people right now may want to come together and make. Those are also a particular kind of device that lends itself to this kind of ad hoc in the moment production where if everyone doesn't stick around and everyone kind of breaks off and goes and does their own thing later, that's completely fine. Um, there's some medical devices which are a little bit more critical that have to be approached with a little bit more intention, but there are uh, there's a number of things all across the spectrum that you could do right now to things that maybe you should only do in an emergency to things that we should start building the infrastructure now so that we can use that later. Yeah. Yeah. And y'all have talked a lot about this, uh, about compliance. And, um, I'm, I guess I'm just wondering if you could explain for listeners, like what, like what is involved in compliance? Like, is it like testing it, the device to make sure that it works, to make sure it works properly? Like what, what, what goes on for compliance? So proper compliance, yes, we've mentioned it a whole bunch of times. It's very important. What that looks like in Canada is four different class levels. And it depends on what types of devices you're manufacturing as to which type of class level you fall into. So currently, Glia is only manufacturing devices that fall into class one. It's a fairly simple license for class one, and it and it's it's very it's very similar with the FDA. Their class one license looks a lot alike. Um, it's a little bit more expensive to get a class one license in the FDA than it is in Canada. It's actually about double the price. Um, but if you're selling multiple devices or you have some pool of money to draw on from to get this, usually these licenses last for a year, so you have lots of time to set up and manufacture, learn what you need to do. The the process is fairly straightforward. You often tend to learn things in North America after the fact. So, you know, we set up our license, we got our approval, Health Canada said, we trust you. And then they came knocking on our door and said, um, hey, by the way, we have an audit for you. And that's very common, you know, and especially for people that are doing stuff uh, in their home basement labs, which at the time, that's what we were doing. So, you know, the point being that it's, it's fairly straightforward. The most important thing to remember about compliance is that it's for the patient's safety. And you have to make sure that if for some reason there's a problem with what you've created, that you can issue a recall. And so, you know, recalls aren't just 
oh, somebody was poisoned because they ate this bad bag of kale. It's also with medical devices. If there's a problem in that manufacturing process, health, we may distinguish that there's an issue and we need to take back those devices and inspect them. And it's important that you have a process to do that as swiftly as possible. So, you know, sometimes depending on how dangerous the situation could be, um, you may have to initiate a recall within 48 hours of discovering the problem and and trying to retrieve those devices very quickly. So it, it's, it's about knowing those processes really well and protecting the patient's the health and safety and life. Yeah. And Kind of going back to a little bit about what I said about um, there are some things where we might want to stand up the infrastructure now so we can use it later. If we're talking about a situation in which we think the government is going to break down or not function at all, um, some kind of collapse or a civil war or what have you, well, the FDA may not exist. And so in that case, if I'm making tourniquets, for example, then how do you know that these are actually well-made and that they're going to work. Um, and so having proper quality assurance processes in place is extremely important. And that's something you don't need a license to develop. I'm not recommending you go make these devices and distribute them without one, but yeah. when it comes to other things, um, you could do a trial run with, you know, Corsi Rosenthal boxes and try and serialize every single one and send them out if you wanted. And that gives you some practice with with doing this because it is as Carrie mentioned extraordinarily important you just you determine later oh whoops we we sewed these tourniquets together with the wrong thread uh-oh we used the wrong plastic i i've seen these things happen in commercial environments for not medical devices but for other things that is absolutely critical that you have this relationship established with everybody that you might be giving these tourniquets to or passing them along to that you can contact them and they know you and you know them and we're not just making a bunch of medical supplies dumping them into a community and then disappearing and then hope that no one gets hurt because that's that's just reckless yeah, yeah absolutely and the other thing is is people shouldn't be afraid of proper compliance you know that's it's not something it's not something to run from i'm like any system, especially as large as some of these systems we're talking about in terms of where to obtain proper compliance from, they're all going to have their pros and cons. And But at the end of the day, this really is about making sure that companies are doing things in a safe manner. What I see a lot is that there's a lot of engineers out there that want to engineer things, right? So they want to build stuff. People love building, people love designing, people love adding their little flair to whatever it is they're doing. They want to contribute in that way. And then when it comes time for the paperwork, they get super bored. And so that's why they don't pursue these things. But I can tell you from experience, I came into this job, I knew nothing about compliance and I am now probably the expert of compliance in our group. And I had to figure it all out just on my own while doing a whole bunch of other things for the project at the same time. So it's not impossible to figure out these systems. But also in addition, remember I spoke earlier about how Glia doesn't just put the device code out there and say, here's the device world, do what you will with it. We do the whole package. So you may not find all of our compliance records on our GitHub right this minute. It may not be there today, but it is, it is our intention to make those things public so that people don't have to have that uphill struggle in figuring out how to do these systems. Because that's part of the issue, right? Is that these systems are made to be somewhat convoluted and difficult to discern. And if you have a bit of an example of somebody else that did this for a tourniquet and you want to go out and build some other type of device and innovate that and then get the compliance so you're doing it you can come to glee and say oh how did they do it with this device this oh this is what they did here's the roadmap for doing that okay now i just have to put in my company name copy these systems exactly and off we go i'm doing everything safe you know and they're not going to give you a license unless they think you're doing it safe. So 
you have that back to follow on, but why do you have to start from square one even with compliance? It's not just about building and innovating the device. It's the whole entire system that comes along with getting those devices from materials to actually treating patients. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like y'all are trying to build like a large community of people who are invested in each other's well-being, um, regardless of profit or something, which is really cool. Yeah, and in terms of the societal breakdown scenario, too, and having compliance not really exist in that moment in the way that we see it today, I mean, that's already happening in the world, right? Like a lot of really amazing places and countries don't have these governing systems and they have to go and borrow the roadmaps for that type of compliance from somewhere else. But there's likely no one in their own countries even governing that. So then so then what are they doing? Are they being safe? Are they not being safe? You know, so making these processes as clear and transparent and accessible as possible makes sense because at the end of the day we want to save people not kill people right like that's yeah. that's the plan here yeah yeah and i'm just going to retrospectively uh change the question that i asked which is um yeah what do we do when these compliance in this like uh organizations uh don't exist or are not accessible and I'm going to pretend like I asked you all that and that we just got those lovely answers. <laughs> um, cool. Well, that about brings us to time. Um, is there anything else that y'all would like to say before we wrap things up that we didn't talk about? Well, I'm pretty sure I want to mention a call to action. Um, oh, wonderful. Yeah. Um, so often when we meet people and people come to Glia, so Glia, First of all, I probably didn't explain this earlier on, but Glia has a very small staff. But in my time in the last six years of being in this position, um, I've seen about 300 volunteers from all over the world get involved in, a ver- in, in um, many different ways. And our volunteers are really what fuels our company and what pushes things forward. Um, Corin's a perfect example uh, of somebody who comes in and becomes quite dedicated to the work that we're doing. Um, And often when we're talking to volunteers or people that are interested in Glia, they want to know how they can get involved and what they can do. So if you don't mind, and I'm just going to share those points. Yeah, please, please plug. Plug the yes, things. yes, we have to plug Leah. That's that's something I can't go through this whole interview without doing the plug. <laughs> oh no, yeah, yeah, yeah. The end so, is always for plugs. That's right. So of course, visit our website at leah.org. You're going to find about out about all of the projects that we're working on, and it doesn't stop with device work. We do education in 3D printing. We do other things. We'll, we'll come and we'll do a seminar for you. We'll talk to people about any of the topics that we cover. Of course, this project cannot run without funding, which is always kind of the thing that hurts me the most um, to have to say, but cash is king. And if you are willing to make a donation, you can do that through our website at glia.org. Cool. Especially if you have $5 million to give them so that there can yes. be... Absolutely. If you, if you have access to $5 million, I promise you we will make it work. And and really, Glia is the most frugal project I've ever seen. You know, people are really good at wasting lots of money. We are <laughs> very good at having the lowest budgets possible and making the most happen. So, I mean, please trust me. I I will make all of your dollars go as far as I possibly can stretch them. We always do that. We want to see our work continue into the future. Cool. And if are there ways for folks to get involved with like uh, like I don't know like if they have if there's listeners who are in places where people might have a hard time accessing medical supplies and they have 3D printers. Um mm-hmm. or is there other ways for those people to connect to y'all? Yeah, we have a, a GitHub page that's GliaX on GitHub, but um, all of that can be found uh, through the website as well. So glia.org, click on the 
products that you're interested in, and you will find the links to take you to all the information to get all of the roadmaps to be building these things yourself. Um, and certainly, if you cannot find those answers there, just reach out to us. We'll we'll help you along the way for sure. Cool. I also want to mention opensourcemedicalsupplies.org. Uh, all one word, all spelled out, opensourcemedicalsupplies.org. There's a number of plans and uh, a lot of information about, as you would expect, open source medical supplies <laughs> there. So that that may be helpful. Yeah, cool. absolutely. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Well, thanks you all so much for coming on today. And I, someone out there, please give them $5 million, please. <laughs> thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, 3D print a stethoscope and then tell us about it. But also tell people about the podcast. You can support this podcast by telling people about it. You can support this podcast by talking about it on social media, by rating and reviewing, doing whatever the nameless algorithm calls for. Feed it like a hungry god. And you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash strangers in a tangled wilderness. Our Patreon helps pay for things like transcriptions or our lovely audio editor bursts, as well as going to support our publisher, Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness. Uh, we put out this podcast and a few other podcasts, including my other podcast, Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness, a monthly podcast of anarchist literature, and the Anarcho Geek Power Hour, which is the podcast for people who love movies and hate cops. And we would like to shout out uh, some of those patrons in particular. Thank you, Trickster, Princess Miranda, Ben Ben, Anonymous, Funder, Hans, Oxalis, Janice and Odell, Paige, Ali, Paparuna, Milica, Boise Mutual Aid, Theo, Hunter, Sean, SJ, Paige, Mickey, Nicole, David, Dana, Chelsea, Kat J, Starro, Jennifer, Eleanor, Kirk, Sam, Chris, Micaiah, and Haas the Dog. We seriously couldn't do this without y'all. I hope everyone is doing as well as they can with everything that's happening, and we'll talk to you soon. <laughs>